Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Glad to be back. Uh, thanks for Robbie for uh, blessing you last week with a message from God's Word, but it's, it's nice to be home. Martha and I were gone for a little over a week, and uh, it's always good to be home. Um, I've had about three of you tell me so far that the great pumpkin has already come and gone. <laughs> Renee DeBose saw me and yelled at me, what are you doing wearing gator colors on a day like today? <laughs> but then Dan Crowell saw me and said, you look great. So on whole, I'm feeling pretty good this morning, you know. I just put on what Martha puts out. So... <laughs> Blame her or thank her or whatever. Hey, you've probably heard this. Um, A young guy is being interviewed for a job in sales. And the interviewer asked, what motivates you to want to be a a salesman? And the young guy said, well, I I hope to make a million dollars as a salesman like my father. Which impressed the interviewer and said, your father made a million dollars in sales? Young guy said, no, but he always hoped to. (laughs) One of those insert your profession uh, jokes there. But I've got a question for you this morning. What are you hoping for? What do you hope for? We're all, we all hope for something, right? You know, funny thing about us, we outgrow a lot of things, but we never outgrow hope. We're hopeless hopers, right? Maybe you're hoping for something, you know, in terms of a financial situation. Maybe you have hopes in terms of, you know, a relationship kind of thing, huh? Uh, I want a boyfriend, I want a girlfriend. I want a different boyfriend or a different girlfriend. I just want a friend. Maybe it's a job thing, I want a raise, I want a promotion. I want a job. We all hope, don't we? Think about this. The Center for Disease Control reports that we have gone through as Americans three years where our life expectancy has actually dropped in the past three years. First time that's happened in over 100 years. And it's not because of cancer, and it's not because of heart disease. Those death rates are actually dropped off a little bit. The, uh, the, the causes of death that are soaring are drug abuse, the opioid crisis, alcohol-related deaths, and suicides. They're They're soaring. To describe this category of death, an economist from Princeton coined the phrase, diseases of despair. Since the year 2000, those diseases of despair kind of deaths have more than tripled. Now, pretty simply put, as Americans, our children, our grandchildren, we're dying of hopelessness. And you think about hopelessness, and you think about, you know, disappointment, and there's that kind of, that disappointment when I want something so bad and it never happens, and I'm so disappointed. But then there's also that disappointment where I want something so bad, and then I get it, and I realize, hmm, wasn't all that great after all. Timothy Keller quoted a columnist in New York City, a woman who worked in the entertainment business, and she knew a lot of famous people, and she knew a lot of people before they were famous and then while they were famous, and she made an interesting comment, but I think it's fascinating. Here's what she says. One of the funny things was that after they got famous, if anything, they were more unhappy, more angry. They were meaner than they'd been before. 
Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything great and was going to provide them with fulfillment and happiness, it happened and nothing changed. They were still them, which I think is such a great line. They were still them. This morning I want to talk to you about hope. And I want to do it through the lens of Acts 23 and 24. I don't want to talk so much about what you hope for, but really who you're hoping in. And the fact that in Jesus, we're not still us. That we're different. That we're changed, transformed. We're better, brand new. As you've walked in this auditorium for the last several months, you've walked through these banners out here that say, the movement begins. And we have spent several months looking through the book of Acts about this, this small group of people who really did start this worldwide movement. So as you're turning to Acts chapter 23 in your Bible, let's get caught up with the story. Let me remind you of what's going on. The Apostle Paul is in Jerusalem. Even though the Holy Spirit said, don't go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. Paul went to Jerusalem, and sure enough, the Holy Spirit's right. Bad things did happen. He's attacked by a mob. He is uh, rescued by the Roman authorities in the form of being arrested by the Roman authorities. As he is being led away, he says, can I say something to the crowd? And he's granted that permission. And two weeks ago, we talked about Paul basically telling his story before this group of people. So now he's in Roman custody. He's about to be beaten by the Romans because that's what the Romans did when they didn't know what to do with you. But Paul has an ace in the hole. Paul says, is it okay for you all to beat a Roman citizen? He lets them know that he's a Roman citizen, and that was a big deal, because a Roman citizen couldn't be punished without due cause. So the Romans now have to decide, what are we going to do with this guy, Paul? He's a citizen. Chapter 22 ends by telling us this. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So chapter 23 is going to open with Paul standing before the Sanhedrin, all the chief priests. Look at verse 6 of chapter 23. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. In this brilliant tactical move, Paul sort of divides the room. The room is divided between Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees don't believe in anything supernatural. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels. They certainly don't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees believe in all of those things. So Paul kind of divides the room so much so that they begin to argue and fight really kind of violently. And once again, Paul's life is in danger. And once again, the commander says, get this guy out of here. Kind of a reoccurring theme. But notice verse 12. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. 
They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Time out. (laughs) Red flag. These Jews go to who? They go to the chief priests, the elders, the religious people. What are the chief priests and elders tasked with? Maintaining, communicating the law of Moses, right? You remember the top ten list that Moses handed down, God handed down through Moses? Remember one of those things, thou shalt not do, thou shalt not kill? And now this group of people come to the chief priests and the elders and say, we want to kill Paul and we want you to help us. And they're okay with that. Isn't it amazing what people will do under the banner of religion? Verse 15. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin, petition the commander to bring him, bring Paul, bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. They've planned an ambush for Paul. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, This is the only reference in Scripture that we have of anything regarding Paul's family. This is the only phrase that we have any indication of what Paul's family might have looked like. We know he has at least a sister. And we know that she has at least a son because her son, Paul's nephew, overheard this plot to kill Paul. He goes and tells Paul. Paul tells the guard. The guard tells the centurion. The centurion tells the commander. Notice what the commander does. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. If you are a Roman commander, what you don't want to have happen is a Roman citizen be ambushed and killed on your watch. So the commander makes a decision. We're going to go to a lot of trouble. We're going to go to great expense. We're going to get a huge group of troops, and we're going to transport Paul to Caesarea, to the governor, a guy by the name of Felix. Now, the Jews that wanted Paul dead, they're actually going to follow Paul to Caesarea. And they actually are going to get a a lawyer to sort of plead their case against Paul. So here's what the lawyer says about Paul. I'm skipping down to chapter 24 now. Verse 5, we've gone from Jerusalem to Caesarea. This is a lawyer arguing why, why Paul is guilty. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Now, notice what they are accusing Paul of. Civil unrest. This guy's starting riots everywhere he goes. He's a troublemaker. He's got to be stopped. They knew the Romans didn't care about the religious stuff. The Romans didn't care about the Jews fighting among themselves. What the Romans cared about was civil stability. 
So their charge against Paul is, he's making your life difficult. He's just stirring up problems. He's starting riots everywhere he goes. But of course, Paul didn't do any of that. They were the ones starting the riots. And of course, that wasn't the reason that they had turned on Paul. But Paul gets a chance to speak. And you ought to be able to guess what Paul talks about. Verse 12. This is Paul speaking. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they're now making against me. Paul says, everything they're saying about me, it's not true. They know it. There's no evidence. None of that happened. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law that's written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul is saying this whole thing, it's not about politics. It is about theology. These people, they're not mad at me because of what I've been doing in the streets. They're mad at me because of what I've been saying about Jesus, the guy that they had arrested and crucified. And then he goes on to say this in verse 20. Or these who, have, or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul says, I'm on trial because of my stance on the resurrection. Now, Felix, the governor, he doesn't care about any of that. He just kind of wants the problem to go away. So he's a politician. He's going to keep Paul in prison, even though Paul's done nothing to violate Roman law. But Felix understands it's easier to keep one guy in prison than it is to keep a whole bunch of angry Jews, you know, from rioting. So, verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul speaks about faith in Christ to this guy by the name of Felix. What did Paul talk about when he talked about faith in Christ? Well, he talked about righteousness and self-control. And he talked about the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Okay, that's a whole lot of introduction to where we're getting to this morning. But let me review the introduction. This thing with Paul is not about politics, it's about theology. Paul says, I am on trial because the hope that I have in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, if you pay attention, that's really Paul's argument every time he's on trial. Paul always comes back to the reason I do what I do, the reason I go where I go, the reason I teach what I teach, the reason I live like I live is because of a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. That's always his message. Paul always ignores the side issues. And Paul always gets to the heart of the matter. And here's the heart of the sermon, okay? 
you're going to pay attention to any point of the sermon, pay attention for the next 30 seconds. The real question here is, is the resurrection real? That's really the issue. Did Jesus really come back from the dead? All of Christianity rises and falls on that question. Is the resurrection real? Did it happen? Either, either Jesus rose from the grave or he didn't. And everything we believe, everything we stand for, everything we do is dependent on the answer to that question. Because if Jesus didn't raise, rise from the grave, we're spinning our wheels, right? What are we doing here? Why, why are we even getting together? Remember, Paul would say in his first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Paul says the heart of the matter is, was Jesus raised from the dead? And so for me, personally, this is just me personally, I'm not going to get hung up on how old the earth is and where the dinosaurs fit in all that. I'm just not. I'm not going to argue about the length of days in Genesis. I'm not. And I'm not going to lose my faith over how the book of Mark really ends. But here's where I stop and here's where I stand. God sent His only Son to this earth to live a perfect life. He's crucified on a cross for my sin. They put His dead body in a tomb. Three days later, that grave was opened and Jesus walked out. Today he reigns as king, and one day he's coming back as judge. If the resurrection is true, everything else I read in the Bible is true. And that's why you ought to be a Christian. You ought to be a Christian because it's true. It happened. You know, you ask most people, why are you a Christian? You'll get one of about three answers. Well, I was brought up that way. That's the way I was raised. Or I experienced something. Or I tried it and it really helped my life. And those are great answers. But you could give those answers to why are you a member of any religion? The, the, the reason why I am a Christian is because I am convinced the resurrection happened. It's true. It actually happened. It's not the kind of thing that's arbitrary. It can't be true for me and not true for you. It either happened or it didn't. Jesus was either raised from the dead or he wasn't. But if he was, everything changes. If he was, our lives are anything but hopeless. That's why Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's exactly what Paul's been saying. I'm not still me. You know, all this has happened, but I'm not still me. It's a new birth into a living hope. I'm different. I'm new. I'm changed. All because Jesus rose from the grave. Let me real quickly make three points and I'll be finished. First, because of the resurrection, we have no doubt. Because of the resurrection, we have absolutely no doubt that God is in control. And we have absolutely no doubt that God knows what He's doing. 
Think about those Jews in Acts chapter 23. They come together and they make this vow that they're going to have Paul killed. We're going to ambush Paul. And they have this scheme and, and they make this plot and they, and they cover all their bases and they talk to people who need to be talked to and, and they, they have it all worked out. And the whole thing is undone by an eavesdropping nephew. You think God had a part in that? You know, we're looking through the book of Acts. We see God working miraculously all the time. Acts chapter 5, there some of the apostles are arrested. An angel shows up and they're miraculously released. Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter's in prison. An angel shows up and he walks out. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. There's an earthquake. The chains fall off. You know, they're free. Acts chapter 23, Paul is in prison. And his nephew overhears a plot to kill him. And the plot is thwarted. Sometimes God works miraculously. Sometimes God works through what we might call divine providence. But you can't come away with any other conclusion in the book of Acts other than God's in control. This, This is God working through all of these issues. Proverbs 21 Human plans, no matter how wise or well-advised, cannot stand against the Lord. There is no doubt that God is in control, and the resurrection proves it. And because of that, God never gets confused. God's never surprised. God never has to wonder, what do I do next? God never says to himself, did not see that coming. There is no doubt God is in control. And here's the second reality of the resurrection. Because there's no doubt that God is in control, there's no fear for those who allow God to take control. Don't you get tired of being around negative people? You ever around people that are just always negative? It's like, man, that's just that's exhausting. People that are always telling you why something won't work. Why it can't be done. Someone who has a problem for every solution. If you're thinking, no, that doesn't really bother me, you might be that person. (laughs) You know, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, what are we really afraid of? What are we really afraid of? If Jesus has proven power over death, what are we really afraid of? If the worst thing that could possibly happen to us, if we die... Okay, Jesus has already conquered death. Now, Christians, shouldn't we be living fearlessly? What Jerusalem found out, what Rome was going to find out was, you can't intimidate a man who knows a man who holds the power over death. Paul couldn't be intimidated because he knew that Jesus rose from the grave. Acts chapter 23, verse 11 The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Resurrection people are courageous people. Now, we might not know exactly where our our story goes from chapter to chapter, but we know how it ends. Jesus wins. That's how our story ends. If we're with Jesus, we win because Jesus has already won. It's interesting, every time that Paul gets put on trial, every time Paul is called to give his defense, he goes on offense. You noticed? You're right in 2 Corinthians 3, because we have this hope, we are very bold. 
because of the resurrection. There is no fear. And then finally, because of the resurrection, we have no excuse. Now, we don't talk about this probably as much as we should, but because of the, re- because of the resurrection, make no mistake, one day, all of us are going to stand before God in judgment. Back in Acts chapter 24, verse 25, Paul talked to Felix. He talked about faith in Christ. Remember, he kind of discoursed on righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Why did Paul talk about the judgment to come? He talked about it because Jesus talked about it. In fact, Jesus talked about judgment a lot. Jesus talked about judgment a lot more than we talk about judgment. Go back and look at the Gospels. Put a little mark somewhere besides every place where Jesus talks about the judgment. You'll have four books filled with little marks. Jesus talked about the judgment a lot. Why did Jesus talk so much about the judgment? Because it's true. Because it's going to happen. And the resurrection proves it. Jesus' own words in John chapter 5, it's on the screen there. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to judgment. But I do nothing without consulting the Father. I judge as I am told. And my judgment is absolutely just because it's according to the will of God who sent me. It's not merely my own. Jesus tells us don't be surprised. Every single person will one day rise from the grave and will stand before God in judgment. And personally, I think deep down, I think most people understand that. Whether they're willing to admit it or not, I think most people get that. I think most of us, I think most everyone, has to agree there's got to be more to this than just this. That there is going to be a reckoning. That there is going to be an accounting. That there is going to be a payday someday. And to deny that is really to deny the whole reason for the resurrection. Jesus came to prepare us for the judgment that he knew was coming. Because of the resurrection, judgment day shouldn't be something that fills us with fear. Looking forward to a judgment day should fill us with tremendous hope. Back when Calvin Coolidge was the vice president of the United States, he was presiding over the Senate one day in a sharp debate arose within the senators, and one senator turned to another and said, you can go to hell. And the offended senator turned to Coolidge and said, did you hear what he just told me? Coolidge said, I've been reading the rule book. It says you don't have to go. (laughs) And when you hear about Judgment Day, does it fill you with tremendous hope? Because Jesus took our judgment on the cross. This past uh, week, week and a half ago or so, Martha and I were able to spend some time with her 95-year-old mother. Um, And I've told some of you this before. Her mother has a little address book that she's had for decades, just a little cheap book. Uh, She leaves it open on her counter. Um, And every time I'm there, I, I look through that little address book. And she has written significant events in her life, going back decades. 
And it's really interesting to look back. It's, you know, it's small, so she, she, it's, it's all in just little bits and pieces. But if you look through that book, if you, if you turn like to uh, uh, June 21st, she'll have written in there, 1987, Maggie born. And if you flip it over to January 31st, she wrote, um, 1982, Martha married Tim. Years ago, I took a pen and put an exclamation point after that entry. <laughs> Martha's father passed away unexpectedly almost 20 years ago. And if you open that little book, on July 3rd, her mother had written, 2000, J.C. to Heaven. A perfect example of a living hope because of the resurrection. My mother-in-law, Mama Dot, has always been the perfect example to me of someone who lives with no doubt. God is in control. She's lived her life with no fear. Not in this thing alone. God is with us and no excuses. I plead the blood of a resurrected Savior. The resurrection is real. And because the resurrection is real, we're not who we were. We've been bought and paid for. We're new. We're sanctified. We're holy because He is holy. Because of that, we have hope. You know, every day as Christians, just like Paul, we're on trial. People are watching us. And people are asking, or at least they're wondering, the reason for the hope that we possess. May we always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. May we always be ready to be very bold when it comes to living a life that doesn't make any sense to anyone apart from the resurrection. And may we, like Paul, be ready to tell our story, to tell what a resurrected Jesus did for us and why we live the life we're living and why we enjoy the blessings we have and why we're striving to be more like him. Listen, as a church family, if we can help you this morning, if we can pray with you about something that's going on in your life, we'd love the opportunity to do that. There'll be some people at the front of the auditorium here. You can join us there. Let's go ahead and be standing as we sing.